Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the many opportunities you have to reach the FinTech Nexus FinTech community outside of our main events. We do regular sponsored webinars on a variety of topics. We also produce in-depth white papers. We have advertising opportunities within our newsletters, website, and podcasts. We also do sponsored blog posts, dedicated emails, and much more. If you want to reach a senior fintech audience, then please contact sales at fintechnexus.com today. Today on the show, we continue our series of interviews I did at Fintech Nexus USA in New York City in May. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Fiorentino. He is a partner at Index Ventures. They're a pretty well-known venture capital firm in the fintech space. The thing that's interesting about Mark is he spent several years at Stripe, so he kind of is it has like an operator lens when it comes to venture capital. So we delve into that, um, and we also talk about um, some of his investments. We talk about uh, Latin America, where he's done some, where he's done some um, deals. We obviously talk about the the challenges with the fintech space. We talk about how he is advising his portfolio companies today, in what areas of fintech he's most bullish on, and much more. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, uh, everybody, and welcome to a live. FinTech one-on-one podcast here at FinTech Nexus USA, day one here in New York City. Um, delighted to welcome Mark Fiorentino from Index Ventures. How are you doing, Mark? Great, Peter. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So why don't we get started by just giving, uh, you know, giving the listeners and the audience here a little bit of background about yourself. Great. So um, you know, for those of you here, I, I'm, a, I'm a co-lead at FinTech, a uh, partner at Index Ventures. I've been there for about five years. Um, you know, I, fintech for us means a variety of things, right? It can be vertical SaaS with a fintech component, a marketplace with a card attached to it, pure B2B infrastructure on the payment side, but anything and everything fintech we'll, we'll cover in the purview. Um, before, before Index, I was at Stripe for about uh, five years um, and, you know, started out as kind of this general catch-all in 2015 for, you know, we had a lot of engineers, you know, I think maybe, right. uh, let's call it 80, 90% engineering, not a lot of business folks. And so my role ended up being this weird mishmash of, sales support, credit underwriting, finance, um, kind of like wherever the fires were, you try to put them out. Um, and then spent another, maybe call it five years in the private equity banking side at Goldman before that. So why, why make the jump? I mean, Stripe, obviously one of the leading fintech companies on the planet. Why, why make the jump from Stripe to venture capital? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that missed investing to some degree, right? You know, I, I spent a couple years on the private equity side, very late stage LBO buyout. So a very different style of investing than I do now. Um, I think there was a part of me that was always a little bit intrigued about investing in early stage startups. But the the issue I had before working at Stripe was that 
you know, how do I give advice to a series B, series A, seed stage founder when, you know, I, you know, I've never worked at a company myself. So I think a big part of that was let me sit on the operating side, try to learn a bunch of the the craft in a way from a company that went from a uh, you know a couple hundred people to two thousand people, and then at least the the advice I give to a, a portfolio company I work with now is is you know likely more meaningful because it can be right. rooted in, in tangible examples. Gotcha. Yep. And so, what what attracted you specifically to Index Ventures? I mean, obviously they're like based out of London. Um, you know, there's lots of big VCs based in this country. What was the what was the attraction there? So, you know, I think a big part of it was, you know, I'd say the style of Index, right? So, one big part of how we invested in Index is, um, you know. It, we don't separate our team by stage. So I could go invest in a $1 million pre-seed, you know, an idea only startup to a pre-IPO $100 million check in around, you know, a year before it goes public. So you have that level of flexibility. It was always about carving out domain experience, the domain expertise that mattered. So I think for me, spending five years at Stripe, you go, well, I know a lot about fintech, Maybe I'd want to focus on everything from early stage fintech to late stage fintech. And that was a good platform for that. Um, and to your question about geography, I think the interesting thing with Index is, you know, we started it, you know, it was, uh, you know, technically Geneva in 98, but then, you know, London for about a decade almost until we opened San Francisco in 2011. Okay. Um, w- when I joined, it was kind of almost like joining a startup within a venture firm in a sense, right? And then you get to help build the brand, build up you know, what does index mean in the US? And it's sort of still, a, we, we work very close with our London colleagues, but it was kind of an interesting opportunity to help put the brand name out there over the last, you know, almost four and a half years. Right, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so then for the work you're doing at index, can you sort of just describe your investment thesis? What is, what, what's your approach? So, so there's a variety of them, but I think one of the ones worth highlighting is, um, you know, I think a lot about fintech is sort of this, you invest in, you know, we, we love picks and shovels that's at index. And I think a big part of, you know, why, why did I join Stripe? Right? You know, actually go back to my time at Stripe that, that, that dictates the thesis I have at index, which is Stripe is a, you're almost buying a lowercase i index of, you know, the shift from point of sale to online commerce, right? And, right. you know, as the shift to e-com grows, Stripe grows with that or add in an index's case where we were big investors in back in the day. Um, a lot of what we do now, uh, sort of piggybacks off of that. So an investment we made back in 2020 called Revenue Cat is very similar, right? So it's a, as they, they provide subscription payments and sort of like customer data infrastructure for consumer apps. And, you know, you could point to, oh, Duolingo, a very good example of a multi-billion dollar consumer app business. Calm is a multi-hundred million dollar revenue, you know, consumer app business. As that ecosystem continues to grow, if you're the infrastructure powering that ecosystem, you get to grow as a sort of like a, it's almost like an ETF or a basket of, of those companies. Um, so, so that's, I'd say that's one key tenet of how we invest is sort of this basket idea. Right. Gotcha. And then obviously the, the venture capital space had some, uh, you know, challenges over the last 18, 24 months, shall we say, um, where you, you first, you went from the hottest market ever, seem to uh, uh, a much colder market, a fintech winter, shall we say. I mean, Nigel Morris this morning had a slide up that showed it was an average of 20, 20 times revenue at the height, and now it's at four times revenue now, which is you know, a dramatic drop-off. But how have you navigated that as a venture capitalist? Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a question that unsurprisingly comes up quite a bit. And 
you know, we had our um, we had our annual LP meeting a, a couple of weeks back in London, actually, and this exact question came up. And one of the things we're thinking through is, you know, the way I describe this now is it doesn't matter where you're from, but like, you know, I'm San Francisco. So what is the most touristy location from wherever you consider yourself home? Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. New York is likely Times Square. Uh, what You know, you go back there once and then you, most of the time, more often than not, you don't. Why do you not go back to a touristy area? hypercrowded, potentially overpriced, tourist traps, sneezing children, you know, you get a lot of that <laughs> stuff going on. And, um, you know, uh, you know, so it, that's a lot of how I would describe what fintech investing was like in 2019 to 2021. You know, it's sort of like you're, you're stuck in this world where, yes, there are interesting diamonds in the rough. You know, I'd go to, I love Ghirardelli, I love chocolates, so I'll go to, I'll go to Fisherman's Wharf just for that. But it, 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 you have to kind of wade through a lot of noise to get there. Right. We're in the exact opposite now, right? So 2023 and you know, 20, even 20 parts of 2022 was sort of like, it reminded me of, um, you know, at the peak of COVID in 2020, I went through a walk in Fisherman's Wharf. And it was the first time in a long time, actually the only time I've ever been there where there were no tourists at all, right? It was completely dead. And you realize why did something like Fisherman's Wharf become a tourist spot to begin with? It's because it was beautiful ocean views. You see the Bay Bridge. There's, you know, seals playing out in the sea. So you, it brings you back to the fundamentals. And so like this analogy for me is you know, fintech, the fundamentals are still there, right? You know, we're in a $10 trillion industry with very, and we're just scratching the surface of technological innovation. Neobanks have only penetrated about maybe less than 10%. Uh, you know, ACH is still the predominant way to pay, especially in B2B transactions. So yep. you take all of that together and you go, there's still a lot of interesting technological innovation to be made. And now there's just a different supply demand dynamic. Yes, maybe multiples are, are compressed or have compressed over time, but with less tourists or investors, you know, maybe they can be off doing AI now. And now you have a, you have a, you have a, you have a more interesting supply demand dynamic that creates better deals. So it's a different environment, but I wouldn't say it's, it's worse by any means. Right. No, that, that, that's fair enough. So, so then from your perspective, is it like now that valuations are, have come down, I mean, is this, is this a better time to be making investments than, say, 2019? Obviously, I think it's a better time than 2021, right? Yeah. But is it better than before the before times? I, I'd say it's, it's different. And, you know, it can be better if you are uh, – here, maybe it's said differently. In 2019 – one of the difficulties about investing in fintech is that every business model was valued the same. So it could be a lending-based business, it could be an insure-tech-based business, it could be a software plus payments business. All of them were trading at relatively high software multiples. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons, right? But you imagine, you know, lending-based businesses are not bad, but they fundamentally are a different quality of revenue or type of revenue than a pure 80% gross margin SaaS business. And you can't value the two the same. Right. In today's market, you have the luxury of saying, you know, this is a good business with sound fundamentals, but I can appropriately price a book value-based business as such if it's, if it's lending heavy. And I can appropriately price a SaaS plus payments business as a SaaS company. And so you can now separate business models with different multiples within fintech in 2019 that was all, that was difficult to do so i'd say from that perspective it's it's better right, right. now gotcha that's interesting um so then i've noticed um that you have in your portfolio uh, some latin american companies i mean we we love latin america i think it's one of the most exciting regions in the world um what is so 
what's your geographic focus and maybe talk a little bit about what you what draws you to the latam so uh, I'll start with the geographical focus. So you you alluded to index being a um, a European based fund by heart. We have a whole another team that specializes in Europe. I spend about let's call it eighty percent of my time in the U.S. and then maybe another fifth of my time will be in emerging markets. Latam is probably the predominant one of such, and you know that gets into why why is Latam interesting, right? And and for a variety of reasons, but especially in businesses like fintech where cross-border dynamics, fragmentation, and regulation really matter. You know, it's one thing to say I'm building a SaaS company in LATAM. There are good ones, but you have to be careful with, you know, some. it's, it's easy for a U.S. or European-based SaaS company to go into LATAM depending on the region you're in. For fintech, it's a lot harder, right? Because you need banking licenses in every country you operate in. The dynamic between, you know, cards are much more prevalent in the US and Europe than they are in LATAM. So it creates a lot of interesting opportunity for fintech infrastructure companies. And if you, you know, you, you alluded to our portfolio, two of the three companies we've invested in LATAM within fintech are payments infrastructure businesses um, right. for that reason. So whether it's Pomelo on the card issuing side, you can also think of it as a Marketa, but for the LATAM market or Liquido, which we just announced last week, actually after two rounds of fundraising, in a lot of ways they're trying to build the stripe for Latin. But there's a, you know, if you dig into what that actually means, there's a lot of differences between how they're building their business versus what how Stripe built itself in the U.S. And that's actually why you can separate the two. Right, right, got you, got you. So then the the companies that you, uh, you know, you talk with on a regular basis, maybe you're on the board or or having a, a, a you know a some sort of like a an advisory role. Um, how are you communicating with them about the downturn right now, and how? What advice are you giving them to help help them weather this uh, challenging time? So, so right now, a lot of um, you know, it's all about ruthless efficiency for a lot of these companies. So. You know, a lot of companies that raised rounds in 2021, 2022 had two, three years of runway. So they still have cash to go. And it's just a matter of it, we're in the time where understanding your economic engine is increasingly important. So and what do I mean by that? Um, it, 2021 really emphasized growth at all costs in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, you know, growth rate is what dictated your next fundraise, is what got you a higher valuation, et cetera. Now, investors, especially at the growth stage, care a lot more about the underlying P&L and unit economics of a business. So growth has to be above a certain threshold, right? But it's within reason. Under, I think what I care more about when I look at a growth company, I think a lot of other people would attest to this, is if I put a dollar into sales operating expenses or a dollar into marketing operating expenses, what is my exact yield or the most predictable version of that yield on that dollar of OPEX? And if I understand a dollar of sales generates me a dollar twenty of revenue or ARR, then that is a business that I feel more comfortable putting an investment into. And so what we're pushing a lot of our founders to is understand the economic engine. Burn ratios are very important. Uh, what's your magic number? Think about CAC payback is much more and then gross margin. So all of these underlying unit economics are taking now sort of that we took a back seat in 2021 are now kind of at the forefront. Right, right, gotcha. So then are you like, what's your favorite area of fintech? You mentioned that you're a picks and shovels kind of investor. And so is you talk about payments infrastructure. There's obviously lots of other types of infrastructure. But maybe I'll just ask an open-ended question. What are, what are the, your the areas of fintech that you're most bullish on? So I think 
you know, there's there's several. But one one that definitely comes to mind is sort of this proliferation of verticalized fintech, and I think that's where we've been spending a lot of time lately. So, the most recent investment we made this year is a company called um, Loop L O O P, and it's a freight supply chain logistics payments business. And so that's just one prime example of how we're thinking about this verticalized thesis, where take a you know, an industry in this case, that's nearly a trillion dollars of cash flowing through it just in the US and trucking alone every year between a shipper. So the person shipping goods and the carriers, the trucking businesses slap an archaic payment method on that. It's either wire transfer or ACH based with long timeframes in between them. And there's a proliferation of kind of mismanagement of spend. A lot of these companies have thousands of carrier relationships and different truckers on a given week. And you're more often than not being overcharged. So when you can combine this sort of differentiated software workflow, like I help you identify when you are being overcharged, this concept called freight audit pay, plus the the moving of the money itself, which creates stickiness in your business. It's a very powerful investment thesis when it comes to, you know, the workflow software is what I pay for. Moving the money is sort of what makes the product sticky, and that's sort of how we think about this verticalized thesis. Right. Yeah. Like, and there's, you know, that is a wide open field, right? There is so many verticals, and so many verticals even today that are that are relatively untouched when it comes to fintech. So, I, I could see that would be a, that that would be really interesting. So then. You just yeah you, know, you announced you said you announced an investment last week. I mean, how how active are you? Um, right in writing checks today, and you know how active have you been? I guess over the last three years. Maybe I'll start with the. I'll start with the second question first. Um, the activity is slower across the board right now, but the caveat I'll say is 2021 was an anomaly for a lot of reasons. You know, like your average venture fund were being deployed in in 12 months, which was actually quite fast. You know, most venture funds are at 18 months plus when it comes to a deployment pace. And, you know, we were doing that in 30%, you know, 30% of the time frame that we would normally do that, not half the time. So that I'd say 2021, even though it feels like there's been a slowdown was actually more of the anomaly than than right now. And I'd say we're at a pace that we that much feels much more similar to 2018, 2019, in a lot of ways. And the I, I'd consider this more of a supply dynamic thing where there is a lot of dry powder. A lot of people raise new venture funds, including including us, coming out of 2021. And then deployment pace sort of rapidly declined. So there's a lot of dry powder to be deployed. The issue is that actually on the um let's call it the 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 demand side, like if demand is a founder wanting to raise money, that hasn't sort of caught up to where we are yet. Because a lot of these companies said, you know, I raised two, three years of runway in 2021. Maybe I'm getting to a cliff in the next nine months, but until I get to a point where I really, when push comes to shove and I really need to fundraise, why would I want to proactively fundraise when multiples are, are, are kind of completely depressed right now? Maybe I should wait for interest rates to sort of plateau, maybe the first time we actually bring it back down. And, and then suddenly I'm raising in a better time. So I think a lot of founders are still thinking that way if right. you have the runway to do it. So there's still a bit of a supply demand disconnect rather than investors not wanting to invest. Interesting. So you are not getting the number of inbounds that you normally get. Sounds like. So I'd say, yeah, it hasn't picked up quite yet. You know, I've noticed a little bit of a trickle effect because if, you know, if you kind of do the math, you go, okay, peak of 2021, two to three years of runway, a lot of people have scaled back burn, especially given the market. So maybe you extend that by another six months, but at some point between Q3 2023 of this year and likely maybe Q1 or Q2 of next year, my guess is that's going to, that, that number is going to dramatically skyrocket. 
Right, right. Yes. Yeah. So, and and what, what about M and A? I mean, imagine there's going to be. I mean, there are, we've already seen a little bit of it, but there hasn't been a boom yet of fintech M and A, where you know maybe there's a founder who's having conversations with people like you, and they're just not getting any traction, and they say, "Well, I, I'm running out of runway, and I just need to get something for my company." So, what what are your thoughts on that? Are we are we going to see a boom in uh, fintech M and A? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think the answer is likely yes, because for, uh, I think in conjunction with that same runway theory that we just talked about, it's either going to be, I, I I now need to go fundraise. If I can't get a fundraise done sufficiently, I still have a valuable, you know, I've built something valuable as a founder and someone's going to value it for some reason. And whether it's a strategic acquisition from a large incumbent or some, or maybe a roll up between two equally sized players. But I, I do think the both the number of fundraises in the next nine months, as well as the number of kind of Series A through Series C acquisitions in fintech will likely increase quite a bit for the exact same reasons the deployment pace will increase. Right. But I imagine the IPO market is still closed do you think the whole year. Do you think, we are we going to see a fintech IPO this year? <laughs> That's a good question. My guess, if you, if you put a gun to my head, I would say not this year. Yeah. Hopefully 2024, shall we say. Yes. <laughs> Holding out hope. Yes, indeed. Okay, so then... What I mean, like you look at um, the fintech industry in general, and you know, there's so much innovation coming. Like it feels like when I talk to seed stage investors, there's never been more companies being started than there are today. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to start a company. It's you know, you can get an AWS account and uh, hire a couple of developers, and the way you go. Um, how what, what what how bullish are you on the on, on fintech as far as where we are today and the work that still has yet to be done? I, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think I think the short answer is I wouldn't be here if I wasn't incredibly bullish on fintech. You know, I, I do I do think um, yes, it might not be the the darling from a from an industry perspective right now, but you know, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's so much room for innovation, both from, a, if you just look at macro data, right, we talked about consumer banking, ACH, you know, even even though Stripe and Adyen are very widely successful businesses, if you even look at the, the penetration of point of sale to card offline, card not present transactions, we're still in like the, you know, 90% to 10% type ratio. So right. there's a lot of innovation yet to be done across whether you're B2B or B2C payments company. So I, I, you know, I, there's not a lack of opportunity. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Interesting. So then when you look at, at your firm, I mean, how much are you talking with, with your fellow venture capitalists? How much are you, I mean, are you really collaborating more than you were before because it feels like we are in unusual times right so uh and it felt like in 2021 it was just who the hell can get the deal done fastest right but so what's it like now when you're talking with your fellow vcs you know i i think in in vc there will always be a variety of 
mutually beneficial relationships. You know, I the variety of seed funds I work closely with, uh, variety of growth funds we work closely with on the opposite end of that. And then even, you know, we've co-led plenty of deals with Sequoia and Dreesen, you know, Excel, et cetera. It's, that's, I, I wouldn't say collaboration is either more or less than it was three years ago. There is more collaboration though around thematic ideas, I'd say. Maybe not, maybe not less so on the deal front. That, that, that's kind of the same. On the, on the thematic idea side though, you kind of go, hey, you're, you know, here's some interesting themes we're looking at. Where are you, what are you seeing in the market? Are there, you know, are you incubating anyone right now given the pace of the market? So there's more creativity around company incubations, collaboration of thematic ideas. But I'd say from a deal perspective, it's kind of the same as always. Okay, interesting. So then I want to go back to um, geography a little bit. And, you know, you talked about Latin America. I mean, we, we have a Latin American event. We're doing it now f- since 2019. And it's, I, lo- I, I, I love that event because everyone is so enthusiastic about, about what they're doing down there. And uh, are there other regions that you are like? Are you looking at Africa? Are you looking at um, Southeast Asia? Is there, are there any areas of the world that you think is uh, as interesting as Latin America? You know, I'll separate my interests. So I'd say from an activity perspective, we we haven't, we've done a lot, you know, we've done a seed deal in Africa, but we don't really have, you know, we haven't really taken the time to build the network out there. And I do think, at least our thesis is, you have to take the year, two years, three years to build a network in a market before you can start deploying meaningful capital into it. Latin America was the first of those markets we chose. Um, I do think personally, Southeast Asia has a ton of int- is very interesting. We just haven't really done much in the region yet. So then, how how have you built up a network in in Latin America? What's uh, do you have anyone on the ground there, or are you just you going down there uh, to visit? What's what what are you doing? So I'd say it's a it's a combination of. Step one was sort of just meet a lot of people in the region, right? So, I mean, Stripe in and of itself, we had a team in Mexico, a team in Brazil that I got to know over time, and that was a nice starting point. We have great relationships with some of the key funds down there, like Monashis and, uh, and Kazakh and, and Canary, et cetera. Um, so that, that's sort of step one. And then step two is you start with the network you know, um, you know, and then you make a couple of investments, and then those founders introduce you to other founders. So that's sort of the, the stepping stone process into it. Right. Okay. Okay. So then, um, you know, we're, we're here at, at FinTech Nexus and uh, there's been a lot of, I mean, a lot of talk about AI. It seems like even the sessions that aren't about AI somehow managed to bring in AI into the conversation. And it, it reminds me like it's, there, there's just a lot of hype. Are you, are you jumping on the AI bandwagon or what, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts on the on the hype that um, is is happening right now? So, I mean, I, I think, you know, well, first off, I'll say AI and, you know, at, at Index, we've been big believers in AI for a, you know, I'm not even saying this just for marketing materials. Like we have, we have made plenty of investments in AI long before this year. You know, Scale, uh, Scale AI, which is one of our successful portfolios that sort of you know, it started out with AV vehicles and you can kind of tag, that's a tree, that's a biker, that's et cetera, and, and, work, and work from there. That's one of many investments we've made on AI. We invested in a company called Cohere a few years back that is sort of a LLM competitor to OpenAI. So we, I guess the short answer is the belief we've had in AI hasn't changed necessarily just because the, the market hype has gone up. Um, so do we believe it's real? Yes. I, I do think there is so much innovation that will come from the world of AI. I think the question though is, 
when is AI a feature versus a company in and of itself? It's kind of an interesting right. thought process, right? And, and like, I, you know, the, the payments parallel is not exact, but it's an interesting one to think about. In the same way that a, you know, you take any vertical SaaS company in existence, they likely have some form of a fintech related monetization model attached to it that could be powered by Stripe, that could be powered by an Adyen, could be powered by someone else. Um, a lot of these companies going forward will have an AI based component that could be, it could be GPT. It could be, it could be Cohere. It could be someone else, but most companies will have some form of AI into it, but it's a feature that is a subset of a broader SaaS tool or workflow tool. Um, you know, at the, at the LLM level, I'd consider it a lot more like a parallel, like AWS, GCP and Azure are right now. You'll likely have all value at the LLM level accrued to maybe two or three big players. Everything else is going to be an infrastructure or middleware layer on top of that. So, and I mean, valuations seemed like they're starting to, uh, well, not starting to, they've been going through the roof for some of these, some of these, I mean, not necessarily fintech companies, but AI seems, it just, it just feels like it's the flavor of the month again. So value, so where people are driving up valuations, people like you, not necessarily index ventures, but venture capitalists just driving up the valuations again. I mean, are you, are you looking at this with kind of, um, you know, some sort of skepticism or, or what? I'd say you have to be curated with how you approach this. And I think this is, again, you, know, you asked a question, several questions ago about why, why did I choose Index four and a half years ago versus a lot of other firms? The, it's really that domain expertise that I think differentiates the way we view the world. And it's sort of, we have a subset of, call it three, four people that are, I'd consider, you know, AI experts. And they will be in, you know, I think we're so cross collaborative that if I look at a company, like take this logistics company I talked about, they're more of a payments vertical SaaS company, but there is an AI component, right? They have to use NLP to extract data off of invoices and then basically tell you if you're overpaying or not. That is at the end of the day, still an AI component to the business. I brought in one of our, you know, one of the people from that team to help evaluate that piece of the tech, which again was sort of not it's core to the investment thesis, but it's only 25% of the investment thesis. So I think, I think what my, my push is to a lot of people in VC is to leverage the people that know this technology the best and then formulate that into a broader thesis around what you're doing. So I think skepticism comes from hype-driven investments. And so I think when people can avoid hype-driven investments, then you know valuations are appropriate. But it's when hype sort of dictates what you're doing that valuations might be disconnected. Right. Okay. Okay. So last question then. Thoughts on the funding environment as we get through the second half of the year and into 2024. Um, do you see, like you said, demand might come uh, come up as as more fintechs look to raise money. Is supply going to, to meet that demand? I think the I think the short answer is yes, um, and this kind of goes back to the the point I'd made earlier, where uh, there are a lot of VCs raised funds over the last year and a half, and from a deployment percentage perspective, most people are likely behind their forecast from when they raised those funds. So the moment that demand skyrockets, there will likely be a lot of supply waiting for it, and just a matter of kind of finding that middle ground, you know, from a, from a, from a sort of that, that middle point. But I think the answer is yes, we will likely see a funding boon in the next nine. My, my guess would be nine months, but don't quote me on that. 
Okay, great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really great to chat with you here today. Great, Peter, and thank you so much. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please go ahead and give the show a review on the podcast platform of your choice and go tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.